Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the virtual voyage, we were in Nazareth at the Church of the Annunciation here in Israel. But now we're headed to a fun restaurant less than an hour away. So as we ride, let's recap what happened last time. The Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth is believed to be Mary's home and where the angel Gabriel came to tell her that she would carry Jesus Christ. As we put this site to the test on the authenticity meter, we learn that it's unlikely it's the actual site of the Annunciation, or I should say that's my take on it. Of course, I want you all to come to your own conclusions as we travel here in Israel. And just to recap, I believe it's not the site of the Annunciation because the Bible never specifically details where Mary was when Gabriel came to her. And this actually is what has led to the discrepancy between the Catholic Church of the Annunciation that we visited and the Greek Orthodox Church of the Annunciation. The Catholic Church is said to have been built over Mary's home, while the Greek Orthodox Church is said to have been built over a spring that feeds into a well. And they say that Mary was drawing water from the well when Gabriel came to her. The only reason we have to believe that the Catholic Church is the right spot, the very popular church that we went to, is because of Constantine's mother, Helena. You remember Constantine, the, the Roman emperor who converted to Christianity. So his mother, Helena, came to Nazareth and saw this spot with a shrine inside of it. Uh, she saw the cave and, and pilgrims had been coming to that spot uh, and saying it was Mary's home. And it makes sense to some extent. We know that Mary was poor, in part because of the sacrificial animals she brought to the temple after Jesus' birth. So a little cave cut into the rock could make sense for her home. But for me, it's just too many leaps without conclusive data to say that this is where Mary lived. And then second, to say that this is where Gabriel came to her. One, we don't know that this is her home. And two, we don't even know if she was at her home when Gabriel came. As we saw last time, the cave, Mary's home potentially, is now quite beautiful. There's an altar in the middle, mosaic flooring on the floor, and candles creating a nice ambiance for reflection and prayer. And that's the benefit I see of coming to a place like this. While it may not pass the authenticity meter, at least in my estimation, it gives us an idea of where Mary might have been when Gabriel came to her. We've all heard Gabriel's words probably many times, uh, perhaps especially at Christmas. But now you have visited a site that could be the site where Gabriel came to Mary and said, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You'll never hear those words in the same way again, I hope. I guarantee that you'll think back to this place, Nazareth. You'll imagine Mary walking the streets that we've walked on, 
I mean, granted, the street level from Mary's day is many layers below us, but still, same idea. You'll imagine Mary perhaps at her home in the little cave, and her shock when the angel Gabriel came to her with the most surprising news, that she would be the mother of Jesus Christ. And this is why I love Israel. The biblical stories come to life, and even if we don't have the exact location, and for most sites we don't, because we're looking at sites from thousands of years ago and things change, even if we don't have the exact location, we can still get an idea we're pretty close. And that's something that I hope will change your life, as it's changed mine. Last time on the virtual voyage, here on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, we were working uh, a little bit on our Hebrew as we head over to our next stop, which involves food. So I think everyone, myself included, will be happy. So we've been taking a break from some Hebrew conversational phrases recently to learn more biblical Hebrew. And I want to clarify something about that term, biblical Hebrew. I use it colloquially in the sense that we have been learning words like Hineni and Elohim, which are straight from the Bible and couldn't be used to help us get around on the street in modern times here in Israel. But the term biblical Hebrew in an academic setting has a very different meaning. When people study Hebrew, there are two main ways to go about it, biblical or modern. So biblical Hebrew is usually studied in seminary, so pastors and educators uh, can look back to the original texts and decipher their meaning. I guess it's not just in, in seminary, but maybe in graduate school of any form um, where people are looking back to these ancient texts. Now, that was the type of Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, that was used thousands of years ago by the Jews. It also evolved over time, since there was first temple period Hebrew and then second temple period Hebrew. Although some would call that second temple period biblical Hebrew rabbinic Hebrew, since the rabbis used this type of Hebrew uh, to write down their traditions. The first temple period, and let's, let's just orient here, the first temple period is from the time when Solomon's temple was erected, so the first temples uh, when it was erected, to the time it was destroyed. And so first temple period had a type of Hebrew that was quite different uh, than what we see on street signs today. And mainly, it's because different symbols were used. Second temple period Hebrew, and again, second temple period is, is when the, uh, the second temple existed, uh, when it was erected, until it was destroyed in 70 AD, and it's never been rebuilt since then. So we had a first and a second temple. Anyways, second temple period Hebrew uses the symbols for the language that we see today. So the same symbol that we see today for Aleph on a street sign is generally going to be along the same lines as what we would have seen in second temple period Hebrew, with, with some differences. And all that goes to say is that most Hebrew speakers could actually read Second Temple period Hebrew. Uh, so most modern, uh, that is modern Hebrew speakers could read it, but they couldn't necessarily read First Temple period Hebrew without some training. So biblical Hebrew is very old Hebrew, uh, with outdated terms for our modern world and contrast that with modern Hebrew. The main differences we see between biblical and modern Hebrew are in vocabulary, grammar, syntax, and then probably tenses as well. 
Obviously, we use different words today, so different vocabulary than we, what we would have used in biblical times because of developments, right? So people from thousands of years ago did not need a word for cell phone or a word for computer, anything along those lines. We also see differences in how sentences are arranged. So modern Hebrew uses the subject-verb-object sentence pattern, which we also use in English, right? We say, Abigail explains Israel. We don't say, explains Israel, Abigail. No, that doesn't sound right. Biblical Hebrew, on the other hand, had different arrangements of sentences. Sometimes a verb, subject, object, or subject, verb, object. Basically, if you want to learn biblical Hebrew to read from the ancient scriptures and learn all the words and meanings of them from ancient times, study biblical Hebrew. But if you're interested in learning how to speak Hebrew using modern diction and terms and modern syntax where we use mainly subject, verb, object, uh, then you want to pursue modern Hebrew. So personally, modern Hebrew appeals much more to me. While it's fascinating to be able to read the ancient scriptures and understand the words and their context, which is something that is emphasized in biblical Hebrew study, these words that we don't necessarily use today, they don't fit in our modern world, but we want to understand their context, that's, that's fascinating. But I can still read the ancient scriptures with modern Hebrew. I just might have less understanding of the deeper meaning of certain words that were used in biblical times only. Or I might get tripped up by verb tenses, which is another distinguishing factor between biblical and modern Hebrew. But the benefit of modern Hebrew is that I also get to learn a language that people today actually speak, and that's super cool. By learning modern Hebrew, you partake in a language which was one of the first languages that existed in humankind. Specifically, you get to partake in its evolution, as the Hebrew spoken today is similar, but also different from what would have been used in biblical times. So it has not been a static language. We think about Latin, right? And Latin today that's taught in classrooms is very similar to Latin from when the Romans spoke it. But Hebrew has evolved, and that's fascinating. If you ever want another good reason to learn Hebrew, just think like this. What do we call our letters, the collection of our letters? The alphabet. Where do we get the term alphabet from? Hmm. Well, let's say the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, bet. Aleph, bet, alphabet. Now, isn't that a good reason to learn Hebrew? When we say the word alphabet, we're basically paying our respects to the Hebrew language, which is one of the first languages to exist and also be spoken today. So for now, how about we jump back to some modern Hebrew phrases here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Before we do so, we haven't reviewed our Hebrew in a while, so I'm just going to quickly remind you of a few things and, and try to stay mentally engaged so you can get the most out of this. Ultimately, I want you to be able to return from Israel with some important phrases that are stuck in your memory for the rest of your life. When you come back to Israel on your own one day, as I hope uh, each of you will, uh, you'll, you'll thank me. A basic of modern Hebrew 
even if we don't know that much of it, is being able to ask someone if they understand our language so that we can communicate in the language in which we are comfortable. And although we hope to be modern Hebrew experts one day, we're still working towards that. So we have to be able to ask a Hebrew speaker or or someone we meet on the streets in Israel, do you understand English? So for a guy, it's ata mavin englit. And for a girl, it's at mevina englit. That rings some bells, right? I know it's been a while, but we're going to dust off the cobwebs and be just fine. There are also a few words we've learned that people could use to respond to that question. Low for no, ken for yes, and katsat for a little. Okay, so when you're in a foreign country and need to know how much money something is so you don't get ripped off or maybe you just actually want to know how much money it is so you know how much money to get out of your wallet, we know how to ask that question in Hebrew too. How much is it is kamaze ole? Now, of course, that won't do us much good unless we can understand their answer, and that's where counting to ten comes in. And I'm sure you know that learning to count to ten makes you an expert in a language. Okay, not really, but is it just me, or is it people's flex to count to ten in some language as their way of saying that they've been learning a new language? I mean, I'm guilty of it too. But I feel like anytime anyone says they're studying a new language, they have to show me that they're mastering it by counting to 10. Well, anyways, why don't we just participate in the trend? 1 through 10 in Hebrew goes like this. Achat, Steim, Shalosh, Arba, Chamesh, Shesh, Sheva, Shmone, Tesha, and Aser. So continue to work on that on your own and come to me uh, when, whenever we're out of sight or whenever we have free time and I'm happy to review any of that with you. But one of the best ways I find to master a language is by using it in your day-to-day life. When you're on the bus and we're heading to a new site and you see three street signs at one intersection, think shalosh, which means three. Think shalosh street signs. And you can even say it out loud. That's, that's even better. Or maybe you're counting your shekels at night in your hostel room to see if you need to exchange any more money. You find you have Tasha shekels left to spend for tomorrow, so nine shekels. By practicing in this way, you make learning a new language fun and more memorable. Well, continuing on our Essentials of Modern Hebrew Journey, Today we're going to learn how to say, excuse me, or pardon me. And the reason this is important is because a lot of places in Israel are crowded. This is a small country with a lot of people, and maybe you've noticed how crazy things can get when we're on the train that goes around Jerusalem. I mean, it's literally shoulder to shoulder with all of your neighbors. And when you need to get out for your stop, but you're in the middle of everyone, you may feel awkward pushing through. You may try and say, pardon me, as as you go, but you're speaking English, so it's doubtful if people will understand. A lot of people in Israel know English, but, but still. And this is why the word for excuse me is important. It will make you more comfortable with maneuvering around people and being polite about it. So the word is slicha. Slicha. Say it with me. Slicha. 
that hit is really hard to say. Uh, when I first learned that, I thought it was just an H, but it's not. Uh, it's chet. So it's kind of like a, a KH or a CH, something along those lines, and it's kind of kind of deep in your throat where that has to come from. Now, I am not saying it perfectly by any means. My friends in Israel, in fact, would probably be laughing at me right now as I'm trying to explain this, but the idea that we want to get at is something along the lines of, of slicha. So not just slicha, but kind of bring something out from your throat there. It's a little hard. Anyways, now you'll be able to get around people whenever you're in Jerusalem with more ease, whether it be on a bus or a train or walking through a crowded shop or market. You'll be able to use the word slicha. Slicha quickly became an important word for me and one that I used all the time in Israel uh, and, and even in America, actually. My siblings and I started to use Hebrew with one another in our day-to-day -day lives as a way to not forget the, the very little we had learned, but still. So our substitute for no became low. Ken became yes. And when my sister and I were cooking and needed to know how much salt or spice to add to a dish, we would say katsat for a little. And whenever we bumped into each other or needed to get around someone in the house, we said slicha. Well, we finally made it and we're just outside of the restaurant I wanted to take you all inside of. It's here in the Samaria region of Israel, about an hour south of Nazareth. And the term restaurant may be a bit misleading. This is actually a factory that doubles as a restaurant. And today, here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, I want to take you inside to enjoy something that is an absolute Israeli treat. Tahini. Now, you know about my hummus obsession. I love hummus, especially warm hummus. Blended chickpeas with different spices and flavorings. It's the perfect dish. While it's a little thicker and denser than mashed potatoes, it gives me the same comfort uh, that those carby mashed potatoes do. Hence why I call hummus Israeli mashed potatoes. Well, tahini is another one of those Israeli comfort foods. At least in my estimation, but we haven't tried it yet. And that's a great travesty because you all need to evaluate tahini for yourselves. Well, let's head on inside. We're going to go inside this factory and learn about what tahini is, how it's made, and also get to try some of it. It should be really exciting. Now, tahini is best when it's served warm, like we're about to have it. But when it's bottled up uh, and shipped around the globe, you usually get it to room temperature, and then you put it in a container, and then you have to warm it up when you get it if you know to do that. A lot of people don't know to do that, so that's a pro tip right there. There's truly nothing that can beat the roasted and ground sesame seeds mixed with oil. And because it's a smoother consistency than hummus, the factory may even give it to you in a paper cup for you to drink. You can actually drink it. I'm not kidding. Well, let's get inside the factory and see for ourselves. Come over here to the glass window and, and take a look. So you'll notice the huge bags of sesame seeds. Workers in the factory are then going to spread them out and haul them. And then they'll take them over to the oven and roast the seeds. The roasted aspect, oh, that truly makes it. It gives some extra flavor. And next, they take the seeds and grind them with a large stone. While most of the seeds are ground up, 
there are some larger pieces of seed that are always left at the bottom of the tahini bottle, if it's good tahini. I actually like finding those kind of seeds and sediment at the bottom because it means a perfect machine wasn't grinding the seeds. But it was a more of it was more of a by hand process, you could say, uh, using old tools uh, like a stone. So now follow the process here. See the huge vat? That's filled with sesame seeds, water, and salt. And someone mixes it by hand. Then notice the machine that takes that mixture and grinds it up. I think oil is added in that stage too to achieve a creamier consistency. And next, the tahini flows out of that pot and down the pipes that we see over top of us. The tahini literally flows through that and gets bottled up using an automated machine. What's even better is that there's a way for us to get some of that super fresh tahini. One of those pipes goes right to the uh, tahini fountain, as I like to call it. So go stand in line over there, and one of the workers will actually turn a handle, much like you turn your sink handle to get water out. And tahini will flow out of the pipe and into some individual cups. So let's all go try it. Yum! Did you ever imagine you'd be drinking delicious, warm tahini that was literally just made? Well, these are the kinds of adventures we can have in Israel. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventure in the land of Israel.